This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You join me on a bright, beautiful, sunny Scandinavian morning. It is freezing cold and crisp, but I'm here to explore one of Denmark's most well-preserved nuclear bunkers. If the Soviet Union had ever deployed its nuclear arsenal during the Cold War, then this bunker would have sprung into action. So watch out for that on future episodes of the History Hit World Wars podcast with me, James Rogers, and you can like, follow, subscribe, share wherever you get your podcasts, and you can join us on Twitter, at History Hit WW2 or on Instagram at James Rogers History. But in this episode of our podcast, we're jumping back to 1915 to a very different weapons crisis the shell scandal, the idea that the troops on the front lines of the First World War were running out of bullets and fast. They were rationed to just three bullets each. And so something had to be done back home in the UK. What do they do? Well, mass mobilization of industry and personnel from across the empire to come back to the UK, to the border with Scotland and England, where they built the world's largest munitions factory, H.M. Gretna. We've got the fantastic Judith Hewitt, who's curator of the Devil's Porridge Museum up in Gretna and Eastrig, who's going to explain to us who worked there. It was 12,000 young women, the Gretna girls, aged between 16 and 21 usually, and Judith's able to explain to us those personal stories and also the horrendous conditions that they had to work in to try and feed those hungry guns on the front lines of the First World War. Hi, Judith. Thank you so much for coming on the World Wars. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. My baby almost slept through the night, so I'm feeling a little fresher than usual. That's good news. Congratulations. How old is your baby now? He's five months. Five months. Well, thanks even more for taking the time to come on the podcast. Where are you at the moment? I'm sitting in the Devil's Porridge Museum in the wonderful county of Dumfries and Galloway in Scotland. Is it as cold and dark as it is for me here in Denmark? It's a blustery day, yeah, that's what, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because you're not far located from the river as well, right, the estuary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Solway Firth is about a mile away from here, so we do get some winds coming off there. <laughs> just, just some, just some. Yeah, well, I had the pleasure of visiting the Devil's Porridge Museum 
last year in the middle of Storm Dennis, I think it was. So I'm well acquainted with what the weather was like up there. But perhaps you can start by telling us what is the Devil's Porridge? Well, apart from being the name of a fantastic museum, which everyone's very welcome to visit when it's safe to do so, the Devil's Porridge was a nickname given to Cordite by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle visited this part of the Anglo-Scottish border regions in 1916, and he wrote an article called The Miracle Working, and it was all about the miracle, as he put it, that was taking place in this part of the world, in World War I, in an organisation or a, something called HM Factory Gretna. And he came to Scotland and visited the Dornock site of the factory, which is just about a mile from where I'm sitting right now, half a mile, a mile from here. And he saw young women mixing together something white, lumpy, bumpy, and a bit wet in a big pot, a big bowl. And he saw these young women mixing something white and lumpy in Scotland, and of course led to the natural conclusion that it was some sort of porridge, but not the sort of porridge that one eats, the sort of porridge that blows up, causes explosions and shrapnel and all sorts of things. So it was the devil's porridge, porridge of a devilish sort was his turn of phrase. And when the museum was being established, initially it was called the Eastriggs and Gretna Heritage Group. But we thought the devil's porridge was a little more snappy and intriguing because the central message of the museum and the central story of the museum concerns the huge effort for World War One munitions that took place in this region. Hence the Devil's Porridge Museum. It's quite an emotive name that sparks up some imagery, doesn't it? Especially when you describe it as this idea of these young women up on the Scottish border who are mixing this potent material. But Arthur Conan Doyle says that this is a miracle that is happening up north. Why did the British war effort in this time, deep into the First World War, need a miracle that involved the devil's porridge? Well, it all boils down to really uh, something that history has come to call the Shell Scandal. And it was a scandal. It's quite contested, the history of it. It seems like some people made a bit of political capital out of exaggerating the claims surrounding the provisions and logistical supply at the front. So it was sad, it was rumoured that the soldiers at the front in the trenches were facing the might of German industry and the might of German munitions and that the British soldier, the British Tommy and his side was being rationed to just three bullets a day. That was a rumour that was circulating. The veracity of that rumour is questionable, but that was something that people make political capital out of and said, this is a scandal. How can our boys be expected to fight and win? How can they stand a chance if they can't even fire a bullet, if they don't even have the bullets to go in their guns? So this led to the toppling of the government, the fall of Asquith's government, and David Lloyd George, the firebrand finger in every pie sort of gentleman, great ideas and energy and enthusiasm, took over the supply of munitions and was created Minister of Munitions. And one of his first actions was to say, we need to do something about the supply of cordite. Before you can win a war, you need weapons and soldiers. And before you can have weapons and soldiers, you need the stuff that goes inside the weapons. Before you can fire the bullet, you need fillings of the bullet. And that was what was made here. So they looked around the empire for the best men, and it was men, to do the job. And they found the steam piston. 
who they needed to give the drive and energy to this. And his name was KBQ, Kenneth Bingham Quinnan. And he was an American by birth and was working in South Africa in dynamite production prior to World War One. Lloyd George's Ministry of Munitions sent cables over to South Africa and said, we need KBQ. He has to come. And they asked for him to come and pack up his whole life. And he was the manager of a large factory in South Africa to pack it all up and get on the boat within 24 hours. And he wasn't actually able to do that. They actually held the steamship for him for a couple of hours. But I think he was on board within 26 hours and steaming over to Britain to take control of explosive supply and the production of cordite in particular. And one of the first tasks that he did was look at all the maps of Britain and say, where can we build a factory? Uh, it needs to be away from the east coast of England for security. It needs to be near to a large water supply. It needs to be near to urban centres so we can get workers, but not too near. So we don't want it at all to explode and to kill everybody. And it also needs to be near train lines. And they eventually settled on this part of land here and they bought a land nine miles long and two miles wide, stretching from Dornock in Scotland all the way over to Longtown in Cumbria. And the Devil's Porridge Museum now sits right in the middle of that area of land that was purchased to build a huge state-of-the-art factory and everything that went along with it. So that's the story of how the Devil's Porridge came to be. History shows us just how damaging these political scandals can be when there's a shortfall in something so necessary for a nation's survival. You can look back to the missile gap during the Cold War, or people talk about an ice baker gap in the Arctic today, or just think of the UK's response to COVID and all the controversies around PPE. And every time one of these crises has happened, a country has had to react nationally to try and fill this shortfall. And by the sounds of it, a bit like with the PPE orders of thousands of things being flown in and the establishment of these massive hospitals to take any overspill, it sounds a bit like this is what the Devil's Porridge, HM Gretna, up in the border regions is about. It's about trying to solve this problem as quickly as possible, political problem as well as a military problem, and get that potent explosives to the front line. How quickly were they able to build this factory? The first sob breaking was unceremonious. They just got on with it. And there's wonderful photographs in the museum collection of turnips growing in the foreground of photographs and in the background, huge state-of-the-art factories going up. Another reason they built it here was the land was quite cheap, as land is still comparatively cheap in Dumfries and Galloway, so they got a good bargain on it. But essentially, it's very like what happened with the response to covid there seems to have been no limit on what could be spent. And they just threw cash at the problem and threw resources at the problem and pulled people from across the empire to try and solve the problem. And they were operational within a number of months. So it's quite remarkable, really, what they managed to achieve here. Because not only did they start to build the factory, but they had to build housing for all the people because this was essentially just farmland before that. So first they built huts out of wood and later they replaced those with proper brick dwellings once they realised the longevity of the project and the longevity of the war as it became increasingly clear that it was going to last longer. They rebuilt in stone also to try and attract better workers. But yes, they managed to achieve a great deal in a matter of months, essentially. 
And there's all sorts of descriptions. There's a wonderful description in one of the documents here that always sticks in my head. Someone said it was as though all the resources from across the empire had been dumped in a puddle and stirred with a spoon. And somehow from out of that chaos, that mess, that mud, I can just imagine them working out there in the mud and the rain and the mizzle and the drizzle and the, you know, all hours of the day. Somehow from that chaos, they managed to create a factory that would help turn the tide of the war. But this must have taken a massive army of people to come in and build this. But of course, the army itself is over in France and having a pretty hard time of it. So who builds this? Well, they're a bit of an enigma, the people who built the factory, to be honest, as itinerant working class labourers are throughout history. They're the people who do everything and disappear because no one arguably cared enough to record them. And because they move around quite a lot, they don't appear on a lot of the traditional documents that historians use. So the way it is told in the sort of narrative of the factory is it was 10,000 people built the factory. We know that from documentation, that there were 10,000 workers. Legend has it they were mainly Irish and come under the broad term navvies. So we know of some of the people who came and a lot of them were from all over the UK. So we know of a family from Middlesbrough. Well, they worked at HM Factory Gretna. The father was described as a ganger or a gang master. And he and his sons and his daughters and his wife and his son-in-law and extended family, about 20 of these people in all, were all at Easter Eggs, which is where the Devil's Porridge Museum is, in 1917, because they were all at a wedding. They intermarried with each other's families quite a lot. So we have their wedding certificates and their marriage records. And then four years later... There's a record of them all in Middlesbrough, the whole family all down there at another wedding. So it's just these mysterious people who pop up and disappear. And we know about some of them because of their births, deaths and marriages. But other people who were here, we don't know where they came from and where they went afterwards. But uh, they came for the work. They stayed as long as there was work, one imagines, and then moved on to where the work was next. Legend has it, and this is something that people at the museum tell me, but I've never seen it printed in paper anywhere. So we could take that as you will. I have no reason to doubt them. They know what they're talking about, but it'd be nice to verify it, as everyone would like to do with any historical piece of evidence. That the Irish workers arrived at Silleth, which is on the Cumbrian side of the Solway, and that they made their way over here. There's also people say that they worked on Ship Canal, the Manchester Ship Canal, prior to coming here, where a lot of people might have transferred from that. We know quite a bit about their working conditions, but we don't know very much about their names and other information. So there's a document in the National Archives that talks about the sanitation. So you can imagine this graphic description of ditches with planks over them for people to use for the toilet. And Dumfries and Galloway Council, the organised corporation at the time, were called out, the sanitation department, to look at it. And the the factory were given a week to sort it out because it was a public health disaster about to happen. So they're so focused on producing the factory and the munitions that they maybe overlook some of the necessities needed for life. There's also another description that always sticks in my head, which is they had a large delivery of cement one day. 
and it was raining. So they said, put it in the workers' restroom, put it in the tea room where the heater was and there was a hut. And the workers complained and said, we know where we rank in the scheme of things. The cement's more important than us. Keeping the cement dry took precedent. So there were grumbles and complaints. The main grumble and the main complaint about the builders of the factory was that they were drunkards. There was a huge social consequence of the influx of workers here. So the traditional idea of hardworking, hard-drinking Irishmen, that sort of stereotype really took hold around here. And the strict religious Scots didn't take too well to it. With the Sabbath breaking, the drinking, the perceived antisocial behaviour, and neither did the people in Carlisle. A lot of the builders of the factory stayed in Carlisle in boarding houses and things like that. And there was a lot of antisocial behaviour. There was a cry out against the Navi and his lawlessness and uncouthness, uh, which led to the legend of the Thousand Whiskies, where supposedly, and I have massive doubts about the accuracy of this story, but it's a good story. So let's just indulge. Supposedly, after a group of navvies finished their shift building the factory, one particularly wet and horrible night, they rang over to Carlisle to the first pub near the train station, said, we're all coming, line up a thousand shots of whiskey and we'll get one drink in before closing time. So they all bundled onto the train, travelled over the viaduct that used to cross the Solway near here bundled out again at the train station, went into the nearest pub, drank a thousand shots of whiskeys, and then raised merry hell around Carlisle. It's a good story. The consequence of all of this was that the government decided that not only should they control the workforce during working hours, but that alcohol should be controlled as well. So the government took over pubs, hotels, anywhere really, and they took over the brewing of alcohol, the production of alcohol. It was all state controlled in what was called the state management of alcohol scheme or experiment as it started out. And that lasted from 1916 until 1973. And it's an amazing story in itself. Wow. I mean, that's a legacy of the First World War, isn't it? Is the state control of alcohol in that region until the 70s. Yeah, I think what happened around here, it seems like a lot of the pre-war issues came to a boiling point here. So issues surrounding alcohol, obviously temperance have been a huge pre-war Victorian mania and something that should the government intervene in it, should it not? It seems like the classic, there's a war on, wartime emergency meant that people could do things that they would never previously have been able to or dreamed of doing. Again, arguably a little bit like the current COVID situation with the government interventions and things that previously governments have not historically intervened in, not in this country anyway. There also has to be probably the world's longest hangover. A thousand whiskies in one night and then state control on alcohol until the 70s. That's a pretty yeah. bad morning to wake up to, isn't it? Exactly. One of the things that was introduced was that you were only allowed to buy one drink at a time, which has led to lots of people in this area say it's why no one buys rounds in this part of the world. Although other people argue it's just stingy Scots folk. I think we're dealing in national stereotypes today, aren't we? We've got stingy Scots and drunk Irish. But out of this swill and this swell and this muddy mess of drunkenness comes one of the world's most state-of-the-art munitions factories. 
nine miles long, two miles wide. But then they have to try and find people to actually be employed here and make this desperately needed explosive. So you've got Irish navvies coming in to build it. Who is it who actually works in the factory? Well, the technical work is largely done by British expats from the empire. And they send out a call, it seems, through the different universities and also through different factories that already produce explosives. They pull talent over in that way. So we know, for example, the superintendent of the factory, J.C. Burnham, he was working at a cordite factory in India prior to the war. So he was actually headhunted to come here and run this factory. K.B. Quinnan, who came from South Africa, he seems to have brought a lot of people that he knew with him as well or called on them. And we know chemists came from Australia who had just completed their degrees over there. So they brought people in specifically for those reasons. And one of the most interesting people who came was a Belgian called Vesely van Ruyenbeck. He was actually serving as a lieutenant in the Belgian army and was pulled off the front line because of his technical expertise and munitions production which I think is a reasonably rare occurrence to take someone out of frontline duties for their technical expertise. And he came over here with his father, who was also a Belgian, and they worked in the factory. So a lot of the technical expertise was global. That's why Easter Eggs, where the Devil's Porridge Museum is, is known as the Commonwealth Village, because the street names are left behind a legacy of the First World War again. So we've got things like Vancouver Road and the Rand and Delhi Road and things like that. So all sorts of names from around the Commonwealth. One document in the museum's collection describes it as a veritable city of Babel or Tower of Babel. So there were accents and voices from all around the world. So the technical work of the construction of the glycerin distillery and all of the sort of chemical aspects of it was done by male professionals. But the labour was done by women. So 12,000 women were employed within the factory and they did all sorts of jobs from working in the power station which was built for the factory to actually doing the, some of the chemistry. We have wonderful photographs of women mixing together chemicals, mixing together in large vats called potchers, huge amounts of chemicals, mixing together the devil's porridge with gun cotton itself, drying it, transporting it packing it, making the cases for it to go in. They worked in the joinery department, even fixing the wagons and the trains and operating some of the machinery as well, such as the electric trams that were used to go around the factory too. Um, so they do all sorts of different jobs. A lot of it, very heavy labour. And they were recruited from across the British Isles. We know there were Gaelic speakers in the factory because they fell out with the non-Gaelic speakers and had a fight. So we know also that there were lots of people from the northeast of England, so Newcastle, County Durham, etc. Lots of lots of young women from Carlisle and Cumbria. So one girl we know of from Keswick in the Lake District, for example. There was a girl who came from the Isle of Man, one who came from Cornwall. One girl wanted to work in the factory and her parents wouldn't let her, and she lived 11 miles away from the factory. So she told them she got a job somewhere else, and every day snuck off, cycled 11 miles here, worked an eight-hour shift and cycled 11 miles back because she wanted to do her bit for the war effort. And she hid it from her parents while she did that. 
So there were girls from all over, and girls is a questionable term, I know, in today's terminology, but that's what they called themselves at the time, the Gretna girls, so that tends to be the way we describe them too, and it's reasonably accurate. They were mostly 16 to 20 years old in age, they're mostly single, and they're mostly what we would describe as working class. Most of them had either worked as domestic servants, so maids and things like that, there's a few sort of shop girls. There's a few who'd worked in factories beforehand, such as biscuit factories in Carlisle. And we know of one girl who worked in a fabric factory in Carlisle because she led a strike while she worked at the fabric factory in Carlisle and then said, stuff this, I'm going to go work at the munitions factory instead. So better pay, much better pay, but arguably a lot worse conditions. Lots of people came because they felt they wanted to do their bit for the war. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, could you tell us a little bit about those conditions that they had to work in? Because you mentioned that they're mixing highly potent chemicals here to make this explosives. That's got to be pretty dangerous stuff. Yes. It depended what part of the factory worked in. So some parts were more unpleasant than others. And they tended to have a high dropout rate. 
So they, one of the problems that they found with the factory was they could recruit workers, but they couldn't keep them for very long, which was one of the reasons that they decided to rebuild in stone and make the housing much nicer. They thought they would get a better class of worker, more likely to stay and more likely to take it seriously and things like that. And they also had a big problem with particularly the girls calling in sick and not coming. So that was an issue. And it's part of the whole discussion around women working and are they as competent as men, etc. But yeah, some of the women were doing incredibly unpleasant manual labour in a toxic environment, which I certainly wouldn't want to work in. And almost everyone who worked in that environment developed a cough, a strong hacking cough. A lot of them experienced severe headaches. And what tended to happen, as is described in some of the documents we have, is that people had a headache when they first joined. They got a headache when they worked in the factory. Later on, they got a headache when they weren't working in the factory. So they got a sort of addiction to it in a way. And we know that one girl tried to sneak out some cordite. They were searched as they came in and left the factory. And we know that one girl tried to sneak it out. At the time, it was interpreted as she might be trying to sell secrets to the enemy or she might have just been stupid. That's another interpretation. It's possible, though, and I know that in certain other industries, people have become addicted to things and feel the need to have it with them and smell it when they're not there. So it's possible that she was suffering from some sort of addiction to it as well. There were also fires in the factory several serious fires and explosions, which did cause loss of life. We know of one young woman who was crushed by an iron girder as a result of an explosion. Her name was Roberta Robertson, and she was a Dumfries girl. And there was a huge service for her when she died in Dumfries. And she's actually recorded on Dumfries War Memorial. Quite unusual for a munitions worker to be recorded in such a way. Rather than having her regiment after her name, It says Roberta Robertson, MW, munitions worker. So that's quite nice. For some reason, she seems to be the only girl. There were other girls who died in accidents, but she was perhaps because she was local uh, or her family are particularly well known. She's recorded on the memorial when other people are not currently. So there were all sorts of health and accidents. There was another girl who lost her arm as a result of an industrial accident, Agnes Gardner from Keswick. And there was another young woman who lost three of her fingers. And we know about that because she received compensation for that accident. It affected her ability to work in the long term. And another terrible accident that always sticks in my head is someone who was a plumber in the factory fixing the pipes for the acid, which the acid went through. He hit it with a hammer. The acid started to leak. It burnt through his eye and he died as a result of his injuries, which is a particularly horrific way to die. Lots of the other accidents connected with the factory were connected with its construction, which was because they were doing it at a great pace. They were just trying to do it so quickly. Lots of falls from height. And one description of someone going on a beam sort of about four inches wide in the rain and slipping and falling and crashing their skull in concrete. So there were accidents and serious ones, and we should not forget that or underestimate it. However, given the size of the undertaking, the speed of the undertaking, the dangerous nature of the chemicals with which people are working, the accident ratio is quite small. And they did take efforts, by our standards, not enough, but they did take steps to try and make sure that there was health and safety. 
in the photographs, the girls are mixing the devil's porridge with their bare hands. In the documents that we have in the museum archive, it does say they should be wearing gloves and they should be using a rake. But in the photograph, they clearly are not. So whether or not they did or they didn't, whether that was a photograph they posed for and they didn't wear their usual kit, or whether or not what was written on paper never happened in practice, I don't know. There were also welfare rooms at the factory for women to take a break and lie down. So they had welfare mess rooms and they would be able to go and lie down there. And there's one description of the girls rolling around as if drunk in one of those restrooms. So it created a feeling of intoxication. I mean, the way in which you describe it, you could almost be describing the trench warfare that's happening across the channel. You've got this muddy mess from which the factory arises and the death through constructions there and those harsh conditions. But when it comes down to the actual factory itself and these 12,000 young women working there, they're exposed to poisonous chemicals that affect their lungs. Again, something that we know happens in the front lines of the First World War. They're missing their limbs. They're dying from explosions. But this is all happening back on the home front, up north on the Scottish borders. Do we know how many in total died as a result of this war-winning work? The official factory record says seven, which is a very small number, really. So far, we've found at least 13. So there's a grave in Eastrig Cemetery, which dates from, I think, 1924. So long after the war's ended, but when they were decommissioning the factory, someone died in the decommissioning of it. So it depends sort of when you start and finish. But during the war, it directly in industrial accidents, so far there's 13 named people. There is an explosion which kills six and they're unnamed. So that arguably put it up to 19. So 19 people altogether, but 13 that we know the names of and exactly how they died. And yeah, of course, over the intervening years and decades, people must have developed complications with their own health as a result of working at the factory? Yeah, it's difficult to say for sure because of the lack of data. But based on the people that we know of who worked in the factory and then we know what happens to them subsequently, largely because they've been in touch with the museum, they've donated things, they've donated records or their family have been in touch. Some people live out their lives seemingly unaffected by it. I always think about Churchill, his diet and his constitution and how much he drank and it didn't seem to affect him very much. I know someone else can do very little and it seems to have a massive impact on them. So the human beings are very varied things. But there's one woman who is called Maud Bruce and she was a part of the volunteer fire brigade in the factory. Um, One day she was in post and she saw a fire on a bale of cotton So they had these huge bales of cotton to mix the devil's porridge, gum cotton, as it was called. So a huge bale of cotton. She saw it on fire and she climbed up it, cut it down, and she severely burnt herself as a result of that. She was actually given an MBE for her bravery and quick thinking in saving the lives of others. And the person who got in touch with us, she said that her mother had had plastic surgery at the time on her burns and she thought that that was one of the first instances of plastic surgery being used on a civilian because obviously it was developed during the war for largely for soldiers. So Maud Bruce was a young woman, put herself directly, she was already working in a dangerous place, put herself in more danger and lived her life to be 100. 
So there's people like that. And then there's other people we know of who suffered from emphysema. So breathing difficulties. And we know a lot of people who pass away from cancer, although whether that's directly connected with the factory, it's so hard to tell, isn't it? We know of other people who had yellowing. So yellowing around the eyes, particularly. And one woman who had the whites of her eyes were yellow until the day she died. And that was about 60 years after having worked in a factory. So the chemical impact on some people, again, it would depend on what part of the factory they worked in, for how long they worked in there, whether they took the protective measures and their own constitution, I imagine. But some people had lifelong effects of working in the factory. So there were some serious physical effects from this work. What were the mental effects? What was it like socially living there? Because you've alluded to the fact that they were searched in and searched out of the factory. This is top secret stuff. You don't want this getting out to the enemy. So what controls were put on these young women? Or were they allowed a pretty open and free lifestyle? Uh, No, they were not allowed an open and free lifestyle. Um, The whole area came under the Official Secrets Act. So anyone who worked at the factory had to agree to those terms. To what extent those were explained to people, I'm not entirely sure. But technically, everything was under the Official Secrets Act. The factory itself was codenamed Moorside. And when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Rebecca West, who also visited the factory, they wrote their propaganda pieces and their reports they had to euphemistically refer to its location. They couldn't directly refer to it. Something I always find very interesting is that they were very concerned about German infiltration and spying on the factory and the chemical processes that were going on here because they were very efficient and very well done. And they were concerned also that it might be shelled. So there was a viaduct across the Solway from Annan on the Scottish side to Carlisle on the English side, there's a large railway viaduct um, about half a mile in length, and they put metal nets across it so that submarines couldn't pass through and attack the factory from the sea was a concern, which I thought was incredibly interesting and not something I'd heard of very widely done in World War One. And I don't know really what the likelihood of that was, but they took the precaution anyway. So obviously it was a very important place for them. So the young women were searched when they entered the factory and when they exited the factory by the women's police service. So they had 150 women. Generally speaking, they were older than the labouring women and they were generally more middle class, more likely to have had a higher degree of education. Some had connections with the suffrage movement prior to the war and they were responsible for searching the girls as they entered and exited the factory, making sure they didn't bringing any cigarettes or one girl was caught up a pipe and matches trying to enter the factory. So obviously while she was working with highly explosive materials, she was going to sneak off for a nice pipe and smoke, which obviously was not ideal. (laughs) And also search them for jewellery because anything could contaminate chemical mixtures or cause sparks or fire. And one girl who was caught going into the factory just carrying her knitting She'd hidden it underneath her clothing. So they were quite a unique clothing, the factory workers with no buttons. It sort of looked a little bit like karate clothes or pajamas that they would wear when they went to work. So that was something that they had to wear and the police monitored that as well. And then, as I say, yeah, searching girls as they left the factory. The one girl who had the cordites 
I like to think it was stuffed in her knickers, but I'm not entirely sure that it was. That's in my head. That's where it was. I just know it was concealed about her person. But there was also people did steal a lot from the factory. That seems to have been a big issue. Generally, people were caught. You know, it was, again, maybe a huge enterprise. And you sort of think, would anyone really miss this? There's 30,000 people working here and a couple of towels go missing or a teacup or a pair of scissors or whatever. It seems like things just went missing routinely. So they were searched for theft as well. But the Women's Police Service kept an eye on every aspect of the girls' lives. The girls really were seen as girls, young women. And the state was seen as in loco parentis, and they wanted to make sure that they kept an eye on the girls there in terms of their working life, their safety, but also their morals. And a big part of what took place here was a social experiment in trying to make a model community and a model industrial community. And there's a lot of emphasis in the documents that we have on We need to have nice houses with gardens because that will improve the working classes. It will make them better. And we need to have scientific societies and we need to do this, that and the other. And the girls want to dance. The girls want to go to the shops and spend their money on hats and silly frilly things like that, as some types of women want to do. But they must be serious. They must be sensible. There was a lot of discussion about what films should be shown at the cinema. The factory had its own cinema. What films should we show? Should they be rousing patriotic films or silly, frittery romance films, etc., etc.? And the women's police force were a big part in that sort of moral policing, as well as the matrons. The girls tended to live in hostels, and the matrons acted like mothers. In the photographs of them, they looked like quite strict Victorian school moms, although some of them seem to have been quite nice, but some of them look a bit terrifying. But the women's police, they searched the backs of the cinemas to make sure no one was getting up to any hanky-panky in the darkness. They checked the segregated railway carriages to make sure the men stayed in the men's carriages and the women stayed in the women's carriages. And they just generally kept an eye on every aspect of the girls' lives and they investigated any aspects of moral crime or any moral issues that there might be too. For example, there were several cases of young women who got pregnant and illegitimate children being born. And there were a couple of cases of bigamy as well, where people pretended that they came to the factory and suddenly they forgot they had a wife or a husband at home and married again. When people look back to the period of the First World War, it's seen as being this new epoch of liberation and women's rights, because of course, These are whole new roles for women in society that just hadn't been opened up before, out of necessity. But this doesn't sound very liberating. Is this something that we can see as a positive in history? Because I suppose in some ways it does lead to women getting the vote later on. Do these women benefit from this role in that way? Arguably, no, they don't benefit. One of the things is obviously the 1918 representation of the People Act. The people who achieved the vote in 1918, the women who achieved the vote, tend to be older women with property rights, a lot of whom have been married or widowed. But the girls who worked in the factory and did so much to change attitudes towards women were generally working class, unmarried and young. Arthur Conan Doyle actually wrote about him himself. He was, prior to the war, was opposed to women's suffrage. 
but after he visited HM Factory Gretna, he wrote in his article that I referenced earlier, the miracle working. But having seen these girls and what they're doing to help win the war, I've changed my mind. And I think if they can cope with this, they can cope with the vote in his sort of attitude. I think that a lot of people give credit to the suffrage movement and the actions of particular notorious suffragettes as well, or well-known suffragettes. And I wouldn't deny that, but I think that one of the main arguments against women having the vote prior to the war was that they didn't fight in wars and that therefore they were in the private arena and that men were in the public sphere. And the war really helped change that attitude and showed what women were capable of. So in some respects, it's a leap forward. In others, the attitude of a lot of the documents that we have is incredibly patronising towards the female workers. There's a lot of disparaging remarks about that they can't cope with this, that they're flighty, that they're unlikely to stay, they don't take it as seriously as the men, they're not as physically strong as the men, they waste their money and they're just interested in shallow, trivial women's business. One complaint is that they regularly have to leave work early or something like that because of family concerns, which is an ongoing issue for a lot of women that they tend to be the main caregivers. And instead of that being a wonderful thing that you're managing to juggle work and family life and being a caregiver and being it's seen as a negative thing, which is something a lot of women feel today as well, the pressures of trying to do everything. So there's a lot of steps forward. But for the actual individuals, the majority of them that we're aware of seem to have had this period where they worked and had their own life and were away from home, living with people of their own age and having some of them having a wonderful time. And we mustn't forget that, that there were pleasures and people did enjoy the freedom of being away and working and the sense of fulfillment of doing something for your country and doing something challenging and challenging yourself and breaking into new spheres. But the majority of them seem to have returned to work that they would have done before the war. So because I think there's only one woman that we know of who worked as a labourer within the factory and then went on to train to become an electrician. She used the training that she received in the factory during the war to continue in that line of work. A lot of the other women became mothers and wives and worked in similar roles that they'd had prior to the war there's always one document that always stands out in my mind when thinking about women and and what how they felt about the war and it's an autograph book in the museum's collection which a young woman collected in November 1918 and all her friends signed it and said things you sort of stay in touch etc and be friends forever and those sorts of things and little silly jokes between each other one of the girls wrote God made the bees, the bees made the honey, the Gretna girls have done the work and the chemists took the money, which I thought was a very interesting, poignant thing. Amongst all the, we're all in this together, propaganda of the war and aren't the girls doing a great job and the selfless, beautiful beings that they're described as. There's obviously a woman there who knew exactly what's what, knew that they were being paid less and would receive less recognition than the men for the work they'd done as well, so... I think it's it's great that she wrote that because it's a real insight into what their internal lives were like and what they really thought in the midst of war. They were carrying out vital work that without it, arguably there couldn't have been victory on the front lines in the First World War. 
Yet, socially, they're policed in every single way, it sounds. And then physically, they're at immense risk and they're working bloody hard. But like you say, they don't even get the vote themselves because they're of a lower class. And it's only those of a upper class or landowners or so on and so forth who get that vote later on. Do they get any recognition, any benefits after the war? What happens to the factory? What happens to these 12,000 young women? Well, the women is the extreme example of tokenism. They all get a token, which is a badge. So they literally get a badge that they could wear that says, I did something during the war, which you could either see as very nice or you could see it as fatally patronising, depending on your interpretation, and, and very much gesture politics. So they got given a triangular on-war service badge after you'd worked for, I think it was three months in the factory, you could register for this scheme and each one has its own unique number on the back. And that's the Devil's Porridge Museum's logo. So the triangular on-war service badge that women got to wear. In terms of did they receive anything else financially or politically or in terms of a memorial or anything like that? Absolutely not, no. The war ended on November the 11th, 1918. The factory closed by 12 noon and people had a big old party for Armistice Day and sang hymns, national anthem, factory band paraded around, cheers, dancers, bunting, fancy dress, the whole works. Everyone was happy and mixed with the sorrow that people felt, obviously, everything that had been suffered. But quickly, people's minds turned to, well, what happens now? You know, what do we need this huge munitions factory that cost millions of pounds in 1916 money? So it would have been who knows how much today. People quickly start thinking, well, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen to us? And there's the khaki election in December 1918 and the MPs for both sides or prospective MPs for both sides visit Easter eggs and Gretna and deliver speeches promising that should the Conservatives win, HM Factory Gretna will continue. Should the Liberals win, HM Factory Gretna will continue. HM Factory Gretna did not continue. So it doesn't really matter who won. There we go. So there was big promises that it would continue in some form or another, either as a different type of factory making something else, or that it would become the main cordite producing factory in Britain. But it didn't happen, despite many false promises, claims, parliamentary sort of inquiries and focus groups and things like that, and much lobbying. It didn't happen. And I think really the claims were false from the start, to be honest, because on one day, I think it was December the 17th, 1918, about 4,000 people were made unemployed in one day. And so that's the dragging it out and saying it wasn't until 1924 that it was finally agreed that the factory would definitely be shut. But it's quite clear from early on that it's not sustainable. And all these ideas of creating a model community, they quickly came to naught as it became very clear the financial situation of the country after the war and they just needed to recoup anything they could from the vast expense that they put in here. So eventually there is an auction of all of the factory. So they sell all the houses, the hostels which had been built had actually been ingeniously built so they could be split up into houses at the end of the war. So there was already an eye to selling them during the war. So they were split up into houses, the hostels, and sold as houses and then they tried to sell as much of the factory plant and machinery and buildings as they could. They succeeded with some of it. 
We know, for example, that some of the huge boilers ended up at Newton Grange coal mine and are now in the Scottish National Coal Mining Museum. We've heard tell and I've seen photographs of a hut that was from the factory that's now in, being used as a Baptist church in Portobello in Edinburgh. And rumour has it, again, it's very difficult to know for sure, but that the factory gymnasium is now a community centre in Brampton, in Cumbria, which I have been to see and we've discussed. It's very difficult to tell if it is or it isn't the actual factory gymnasium. But people came, bought it because it was a fire sale. Things were being sold for very ridiculously low prices because they're just trying to get anything back. And a lot of the time, when you go and look around the old factory sites, there's piles of bricks everywhere. And it leads me to think that people bought the steel frames of the buildings and left the bricks behind because bricks are probably not worth the cost of transporting. But you could easily turn an engine shed into a barn at your farm, for example, and get the bricks locally. The only parts of the factory they actually couldn't sell were retained in the Ministry of Defence hands, and they still are in the Ministry of Defence's hands today. There's ESD uh, Eastriggs, which is about a mile from the Devil's Porridge Museum. That's now a mothballed site, and the MOD would like to sell it off and have it be used for something else. There was a narrow-gauge railway line that ran around it, which was a World War One narrow-gauge railway line. They laid over 125 miles of railway track within the factory. That narrow-gauge railway line was allegedly stripped up and sent over to an Indian mining company about 10 years ago. So that was one of the only bits left. There's the odd building. There's a couple of hills inside the factory, which are nitroglycerin hills, which were built for nitroglycerin jelly to slide down. And then the other site, main site, is MOD Longtown. Both sites were used during World War II as central ammunition depots. They were CAD Longtown and CAD Eastrix. But MOD Longtown is still operational, but ESD Eastrix hasn't been used since the first Gulf War for any weapon storage. Every so often, the Devil's Porridge Museum has been able to go around the factory site at ESD Eastrix, but recently it's been very problematic. The Ministry of Defence are reluctant to let people into it. There was one main building left of the factory, Eastricks and Gretna are still World War One, even though people live in the houses. Not everyone knows that they're living in a World War One house, but Eastricks and Gretna are still standing, and the police barracks is in Gretna, and the fire station in Eastricks, and you can still see things around here. But one of the main buildings of the factory was the central headquarters, which came to be known as Mossband House. It was central HQ for the factory. It would have been where the king and queens went round when they visited, it would have been where KB2 had his offices, it would have been where Lloyd George would have visited as well. It was knocked down about 10 years ago, unfortunately, after we tried to campaign to save it, but unfortunately it wasn't sustainable, the MOD knocked it down. But we were able to retain the clock that was on top of it. So the house was called Mossband House, it had 29 phone lines in it in 1916, so that gives you an idea of what a hub of energy and you know must have been such a busy place it became a derelict building it was knocked down and the museum managed to retain the clock from its tower under which so many people must have sat and discussed so many interesting things and made so many important decisions for the course of the war we've just recently restored that clock with the original clock makers who built it 104 years ago so we're very pleased to have just recently unveiled that within the museum and to have restored it to its rightful place at the heart of the museum so 
Yeah, the end of the war is quite a depressing story for this area. It's not really been the same amount of industry or employment here since then. But the museum is doing what it can to try and commemorate what happened here and not let it be forgotten. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of a sad fizzle to the end of the war and to the end of this really quite vibrant and vital factory. But I suppose with the end of the war, it's almost inevitable, isn't it? Because like you say, you don't need that much cordite anymore. But standing on this site now is the Devil's Porridge Museum to keep telling this story. So where can people learn more about this story? And are you open for visitors? Let me reopen for the season from January the 9th and we were open every single day of the year, 11 months of the year. We just closed in December. And you can learn more about us at our website, devilsporridge.org.uk, where we have an online shop and you can buy our guidebooks and other publications, should you wish to. And do come and visit us sometime soon. And I can't encourage people enough to do that. I know it's hard times for museums out there. So you can go on and buy the merchandise and then visit when you can. And if you want to see some of the visuals from Gretna, from the region and from the museum, you can go on to historyhit.tv and you can watch the episode that we did with Judith on uh, the Devil's Porridge, which uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do that as well, Judith. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.